Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male-dominated world. All of my guests have been handpicked from the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're really like as people, usually when the TV cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure and stress of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold her impressive reputation. How? Because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or maybe even intimidated by all the usual kinds of societal labels and trophies. The women of STEM on this show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've gathered from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of climate science. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. So climate science is a massive topic. And I must say, over the years, having reported on the subject, it's really gone through a lot of um, contradictions, almost. Uh, In what way? Well, just scientists agreeing and not agreeing and, you know, stating certain things and then actually kind of reversing what they're saying. I mean, that's that's what we get as the public, um, I feel, once it's all filtered through. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think that, um, well, I think it's, they've done these various surveys of, of people who actually do climate science and like people who research and, and, and gather data and things like that. And the scientific consensus on climate change has been up to 98% or 97% for well over a decade, you know, maybe even 15 years or so. But the um, the public's perception of that scientific consensus is really, um, it's not, it's, it's not that it's misunderstood. It's just not well communicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a failure of the media. climate scientists themselves. But it, yeah, in so much um, media and really actually really powerful lobbying groups and where money is. I think that that's, um, there's been a lot of money that's been put into kind of sowing discontent and distrust Mm -hmm. and and misunderstanding. Um, That's really frustrating as a climate scientist because we have, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with one of the largest humanitarian challenges um, that is, is really multifaceted Mm -hmm. and it's, it's the, you know, it's it's something that we're going to have to ta- tackle globally um, to ensure that everybody gets an equitable future. Yeah, um, that's that's not going to be painful. Um, so yeah, it is it is it is interesting. It's an interesting time to be a climate scientist. Yeah, yeah, because um, having worked with NASA, um, we mm. reported on them collecting data on Operation Icebridge. Mm, I'm not familiar with that one, but. Well, it was uh, an operation that basically sort of, so 
is it frustrating then um, being in climate science at this time where data can almost be skewed? I guess that the frustration about being in, in climate science is that, um, you know, the 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 first IPCC report, the the United the United Nation does um, it it has a report. It's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's called the IPCC report. We've been having these reports for, I think the first one was in '98 uh, or so. It was well over 20 years worth of reports that have sort of documented the the problems with climate change, with global warming, with how resource um, availability, water scarcity, water and food security really is are, are going to change over, you know, with the inputs of of, of CO2 into the atmosphere due to human land use issues or, or pulling, extracting fossil fuels from the ground. Um, so it's not that, it's not that scientists haven't known that there are these kind of potentially dire consequences for climate change. It's just, it, it, it's been really frustrating that it's not, that there is this public sort of science disconnect. And, um, you know, the, the people who collect data, they're, they're really passionate about their work, like you said, you know, people who go to sea or people who go and fly planes to understand cloud aerosols mm-hmm. or any any of those numbers of things. They're really passionate about their yeah. work. And they do. Um, there is sort of this idea among scientists, the need to m- remain neutral, yeah. um, that somehow the, if you, you, you remove yourself from the policy implications of of your work that it it maintains the integrity of the science that yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Because um, you're not swayed the, then one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're if you're advocating for a particular um you know policy decision or p- particular action, you're seen as being invested in it in mm-hmm. some way, yeah. right? And and I think that you get this you get this outside of climate science, uh, you know, if you let's say that you're uh somebody who works on vaccines or um uh, like evolution or something like that, and and like if I could see that if you're you know, working in evolution as a as a scientist, you know there are potentially political um, just sort of the quality of science education um, and whether or not evolution is taught in schools um, could be potentially problematic if you're if you're advocating for that. But that's that's your actual that's that's your research, that's the science. And that's, that's what your research shows is that evolution or that vaccines work or any of those sorts of things. But you, the moment you start advocating for a certain guideline, a certain outcome, you, you've, you've lost a bit of that um, neutrality in some ways. Which can be really tricky because, um, you know, research has to be funded. And so often it's funded because there's an expectation of an outcome, right? There, are, there is sort of this um, this trope about that uh, it's, it, um, it ends up being sort of a, a climate denier kind of talking talking point that you know all these climate scientists, all these scientists that are that are saying climate change is you know real and that it's happening, but somehow we're making a ton of money based on. Uh, based on advocating for the fact that we need to, that we need to do something about climate change but in reality these people who do academic or scientific research are not you know we're not making tons and tons of money we're you know we we go about our jobs we we you know we 
have to pay bills like everybody else and you know sometimes struggle to make ends meet and and that this whole narrative that we're oh we're just making so much money off of you know peddling uh climate change is real or something like that is it's an interesting way to kind of discredit the Mm, science yeah that everybody's generating how did you end up in climate science was it something that you always knew that you wanted to do from early on the community that i grew up in was pretty environmentally conscious um you know things like understanding recycling or or trying to um I grew up in an area that experienced a lot of droughts. So trying to think about how to conserve water um, and use water wisely was something that was sort of uh, was important Mm. to my upbringing. So this idea of conservative, like environmental conservation or, you know, just really understanding. Yeah. Awareness or understanding how, uh, you know, the earth functions, um, and how things are really interconnected between the ocean and the atmosphere and the and the earth, um, like the rocks was. Uh, it just sort of I felt very important from you know from my early education mm. onwards, and it just ends up you know the, the the experiences that you have when you're growing up the the it it just ends up being really important for how you. How, what you do as a person, what you do as an, yeah. an adult, right? The the things that you experience in yeah. your childhood. So, for instance, yeah. I, I I grew up in an area that was um, influenced by um, El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is this. Um, it's the largest source of of uh, climate variability outside of the seasonal cycle, um, and it in, it influences climates globally. And there was a particularly big one while when I was growing up in 97, 98. And that experience actually, uh, it influences some of my research today, just this experience that I had uh, in in my community, just growing up in an El Nino event is has inspired a lot of my research, actually. Right. So it was kind of like, you know, growing up as a child, you were just very aware of your environment and the part that people humans played in your environment and that sort of like sparked your your interest in it yeah because I find in this day and age um we're all much more conscious of recycling whether we do it or not we are very aware Mm. of you know the plastic islands that float in the ocean and things like that um but that doesn't necessarily mm. um, make everybody go into science. Like, what was it for you that made you actually um, study STEM subjects? Well, I guess that um, I was good at it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, both my parents are are interested in in STEM fields, um, oh, so okay. it, was, it was something that I grew up with. Um, yeah, I grew up near an ocean, so understanding how the ocean. Uh, is important for understanding climate science and how the earth, you know, uh, is essentially it's just, it was, it was just kind of always there. It was yeah. just something that you grew up with. And you, you know, when you go, when you grow up in a family that is very science positive, it's, it's, you know, it, it affects your trajectory in many ways. Yeah. And it really helps, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, it does. Because I've definitely spoken to people who um, grew up in a sort of STEM household and 
um, there was just this mindset within the home of sort of questioning and being curious and seeing the world with wonder. Mm -hmm. Is that what your childhood was like then? Yeah, it was definitely like, you know, my, my parents made sure to try and take us to the zoo or the aquarium or anything like that. Um, we had fish tanks when I was growing up. So you, you could see a little, you know, a little bit of the ocean in your, um, in your living room. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was kind of, it was fun growing up yeah. like that in that kind of household. So what was it like at school? Because um, STEM subjects, um, you know, girls do have a real interest generally in STEM subjects. Mm. And then they hit an age of about, 10 or you know around their teens where they start to fall away from the subjects on account Mm -hmm. of it becoming quite challenging like did you ever experience Mm -hmm. that um no I didn't I didn't find and I think that's because in part because I had a very um motivated parents like they were very encouraging Mm. um so you had I had a support network in that way to maintain interest in STEM and 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 in STEM fields um you know, being able to go ask either of my parents for for help with homework was immensely beneficial, right? That's a, an extreme privilege to to have. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't. Um, I don't feel like I really experienced much discouragement, like really until I um, actually when I when I started career building as an academic researcher, I feel like that was when um, things got much more difficult. Like the, like when I went to college, you know, there were, there were few women in my math classes or, mm. um, in my physics classes, but it didn't necessarily, I mean, obviously I, I noticed it and I was like, this is problematic. Um, but I never felt that I wasn't able to do what I needed to do because I, I had always been relatively good at school. Um, and then also just that, that, that intellectual support from home was was probably very key to my success. Mm. So, what were the ratios like in your science classes, um, gender wise? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm in a field that's actually um, that's pretty uh, in 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 undergraduate. It's probably about it's almost about fifty fifty actually. Hmm. Um, it's not very um, it's not very uh, male dominated. Um, uh, but the, you know, my physics classes, math classes, math classes probably had about 30% women physics, probably 20% women, kind of those core classes that you have to take, um, for, for your degree. But the, the actual degree that I had was pretty, I would say it was was about 50, 50 or maybe 40% female. Right. It sounds like your climate science degree, um, involved you having to learn all the sciences, like a broad sweep. Yeah. Climate science is definitely, you can, you can come at climate science. So there's, there's no degree for climate science, but that's where, um, but that's sort of the umbrella term that I think most, you know, accurately describes what I do, but there are for anybody who, who does climate science, um, oftentimes they'll either have a physics background or chemistry background or geology background, or um, even a biological background. It's a very multidisciplinary um, kind of field. And you can see that from, 
you know, people who do, who might look at satellite imaging to understand how, um, you know, ice caps move or how plastic moves through the, through the ocean, they probably had some sort of physics degree, um, but they're now using satellite remote sensing to, to understand these sorts of things, which is part of the climate system. And if you're interested in, um, you know, understanding how the ocean uh, uses, how the ocean breathes carbon essentially through biological activity, you might also use remote sensing, but you might've had a biological degree that helped you understand about how phytoplankton function and, and, and work in the ocean. So it's, yeah, you end up having people come at this, these different questions with, with various um, expertise. It sounds like a place where you could really get creative actually. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, if I, my research is incredibly creative, you know, I use chemistry. I use, I, I regularly use, um, coding. So I use MATLAB regularly to, to analyze my data sets. Um, I collaborate with people who use, um, you know, global climate models to understand how different processes are important to the climate system in general. So yeah, you have a, you have a really diverse, uh, toolkit to, to, to really do some climate science research. That sounds incredibly academically demanding, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got up to a high level? Um, I just actually just started my first position at a university. So I have my first permanent position now. Right. So that's um, after doing a PhD and things like that. Yeah, I did a, uh, I did a PhD. I did um, a few years of postdoc and now I have my first uh, permanent position. Gosh, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> it sounds like you're really pushing the frontiers of whichever sort of niche you're in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's it's it's such a communal effort as well. Mm. Like there's there's it's really inspiring. There's so many people, you know, doing their PhDs and also people in my career stage who are just starting to get their first academic jobs. Like the quality of work that is coming out of our community and the kinds of questions that we're we're asking to try and figure out, you know, what's going to happen with future climate change is, is very, it, I, I'm just, I'm always impressed with my colleagues in the mm. field. Yeah. I mean, listening to kind of what's demanded of you academically, I kind of was making this assumption that you must be quite introverted and very quiet and sort of analyzing data and things like that. But then mm. um, you also must have to be quite sort of, uh, collaborative um, yeah collaborative um, you do have to be an extrovert in in some ways um, I wouldn't I'm not I wouldn't necessarily I although some of my work I do on my own I wouldn't describe myself as an as a as an introvert although probably on the grand scale of people from in academic versus general population where we're you know probably leaning towards more introverted but um, uh, yeah, you have to do things like give talks mm. and network with people. And, um, you know, I just came back from a conference, actually. And, uh, you know, I was there for maybe five days. It was it's a it's a relatively new community to to me. So I didn't know a lot of people there. So that ends up being a bit tiring. Um, just, you know, meet, meeting new people, talking about science, talking about not science yeah. uh, and just uh, interacting with people. Yeah. So as a sort of personality um, growing up through this mm. academic route, like, have you 
always been that sort of um, relatively balanced person between extrovert, introvert, or have you had to develop these characteristics as you've come, you know, come to need them? Um, I think that I, I, I feel like I, like personality is one of those things that don't really, doesn't really change. Um, uh, so I don't feel like I've really like had to change that much as, as to who I am, as to whether or not my success and the characteristics that I have was sort of, you know, self-fulfilling in some ways to be successful in academic careers, maybe, I don't know. But um, I don't know. I think if I think for any field to be health, healthy, you have to have a diverse set of personality types, uh, whether you're introverted or extroverted, um, to be to be successful. Because it it takes all kinds of different types and different types of insight for science to happen. Really, for you know, community to happen. It's re- It's really reassuring that you say that actually, because I think some people have this stereotypical image of what a scientist looks like and sort of Mm -hmm. being reclusive and locked up in a lab the whole day is kind of part of it um but actually it can be amazingly sociable because you basically have this very specific community that you um have something in common with you share a passion with and uh, you really get to know these people and have really interesting conversations no i it was interesting i i had um uh, uh, at this conference that I went, I, I went to recently, I had an afternoon off and a colleague and I had to catch up. We're, um, sort of figuring out ways to potentially collaborate and, and set up a project. And, uh, both of us just kind of had the afternoon free and we met at a cafe, um, just to exchange ideas and talk about science. And we ended up talking for maybe five hours straight about science, about, you know, politics, about, you know, a bunch of different things, uh, you know, over coffee and, and a couple glasses of wine. And it, it, it was a really enriching experience. It is about those personal relationships that you develop with people mm-hmm. as well. Um, that, that makes science fun and, and, and brings science forward as right. well. So is that your sort of community then? Are you very much within a group of people that think the same way as you? Or do you have friends outside of academia oh yeah i have friends outside of academia um i they tend to be other um very um accomplished women themselves as well um uh like high-powered careers in law or policy um the but they they we end up even though we don't necessarily do the same thing we end up having very similar struggles Mm. um in our career building oftentimes. So we're able to lend, uh, lend each other support um, or network with people. Um, so I have a few friends who are in um, policy or in science communication or, or even writing um, like um, science journalism where I, you know, if I, if I talk to a student who's doing their PhD or undergraduate or something like that, and they kind of express an interest in this, I, I'm able to, um, network with them with with some of the other people that I know in these fields um, and these are people that I met either through my own um, academic studies or, or friends of friends and things like that but um, no I have a I have a I have a balance of people within sort of my academic my very niche academic community and then also outside of academia and what are those common struggles between all women then that you know um 
Well, I think so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, uh, mid thirties and a lot of my female friends are also kind of in that mid thirties range. And we, the, a lot of the same similar struggles that we have is, um, dealing with terrible people at work, um, feeling like you're, you're ready for a promotion or, um, you know, um, wanting additional challenges or work, but people not saying that you're ready, um, seeing, uh, um, sort of favoritism play out at work sometimes where you're, where you're passed up for promotion, um, that kind of thing, not, not being, finding out that your colleague is paid yeah. more than you are, or that you're not being paid what you're, what you were supposed to be being paid. Um, yeah. that kind of stuff. It's interesting that it happens across industries, not just within STEM. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Because what I've heard a lot about is, um, there are so few sort of vacancies, uh, for women, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like a certain quota has to be filled. And so it can get quite competitive amongst women to fill that quota. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's so, I'm not so sure if it's, for me, it, that's not my perception per se, that it's like, oh, you have to, you know, we have to have, you know, two women or something like that. It's, it's more that, um, it's more that there are not necessarily transparent hiring mm -hmm. yeah. practices. So, um, for instance, at a previous institution that I was at, um, they, uh, they hire, they often hire their postdocs as, uh, sort of permanent research staff. And, um, just because the way that, um, the funding agencies have, have really struggled recently. So of these, um, so of these ins research institutions that, that, um, work part of their, their money comes from soft money. So people bringing in grants. And so, um, at this particular institution that I was at, um, they they haven't done a lot of hiring. There's been a really hiring freeze in some ways because they're not capable of, of really covering those extra costs from bringing on new people. Um, but you know, at this, at this particular institution, the, um, the people going up for promotion, the, the pool of of likely candidates is, is roughly 50, 50 women and female, male and female, excuse me. Um, but the, you know, the special promotions that have been created for people have, have like in the last, I guess, five ish years, all of them have right. gone to men. So they've, they've magically created three positions that have, you know, all gone to men because somebody, in a position of power had sort of decided that they needed to transition to a permanent research role. Um, and the same sort of uh, favoritism wasn't uh, extended to anybody else. Well, it wasn't extended to anybody who was a woman. Yeah. I mean, there are so many reasons why that could have happened. Right. I mean, one of them maybe being mm -hmm. that men can be really, really pushy. Um, for what they want, whereas yeah. women tend to be less so. Yeah, I mean, I think in this particular case, it was essentially men in power who uh, had a vision of where they wanted to see a research direction go. That was, you know, where they wanted their research vision to go, and so they were they were senior men who yeah. pushed and made it happen. Yeah, yeah exactly. Do you think? Um, Seeing as you do have friends that are across different industries, not just STEM, 
Um, do you think that women generally have uh, difficulty in being assertive within the workplace? Um, I think that it can be challenging. I, I, I think that we also, um, yeah, I think it can be challenging because if you do like advocate for yourself, if you do complain about unprofessional behavior or complain that you're, or not, or ask for a raise or any of those sorts of things, um, just the, the fact that you're, um, a woman, you know, making a complaint or asking, asking for something more, um, that ends up being, uh, hard for people to deal with of, of, of both genders not this isn't just men or or women it's it's um when you have women asking for things asking to be treated fairly asking to be paid um it ends up being difficult in a workplace to kind of accommodate that often mm. yeah i think that's what yeah but but men don't seem to have the same difficulty when they're asking for something yeah, but I think that that's I think that's often just because we're uh, kind of socialized to to you know get dominant behavior from men or often dominant behavior from men that men are supposed to advocate for what they want. But when you put a position a woman in that similar position where she's advocating for her wants and needs, you know suddenly they're difficult. Suddenly they're yeah. not a team player, um, yeah. and and that sort of thing, which is a you know. But in the same way the um, I, I feel like so much of the advice that we give women about being successful in the workplace is to, for them to act more masculine or act yes. more like we expect men to act. And I think that that's such a disservice in general. And, and I say that as somebody who is a huge advocate for myself. I am pushy. I'm probably a difficult woman. I know that I've been labeled that way, but I, I really feel that you, you know, you shouldn't, to be successful, you shouldn't have to adopt what we sort of societally think of as masculine um, characteristics to be successful. I think we should accept, you know, that, that women can be team players and be successful and that they should still get paid well without having to yell at the top of their lungs that they should get paid well. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think women should not have to be aggressive um, and, you know, adopt sort of male characteristics, but it's also really tricky to then stay feminine and be heard and be, to be, yeah, just to be recognized for mm. what it is that we want um, to be taken seriously. Really. Yeah. Uh, and I honestly don't have the answers. I mean, I'm I'm starting to get a general sense of how women should be, which is, you know, they should be proud to be female. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it really actually boils down to confidence and um, really being driven by a genuine passion and concern to do their jobs well. Um, whereas I think the male way, if I could be so bold as to say, is often quite ego-driven. You know, I'd heard this statistic, and I don't know if it's... Um if it's, you know, it's just something that I had read or something that I had heard on a podcast at one point, it was that, um, so they do these micro loans in developing nations, um, mm -hmm. for, um, 
for for people who want to start a business or or some sort of economic project within these developing nations. Uh, and they found that when women were given these micro loans, they by far and away invested in within the community. They you know tried to make sure that um, uh, you know that the well that that you know the welfare of the children that that, that the community really benefited from this injection of cash versus the if men were given this this these micro loans, it was about ego. They weren't necessarily successful, and it was more about um, personal gain. And um, I always thought that that was very interesting because I, I, I try to view myself as, or I try to be very community minded. I, I, I think that people working together, tackling big questions is, is, you know, the, what it leads to success. And, um, and I don't know whether or not women are just socialized to be more community minded, or if we are more community minded, in general, I, I have no idea, but the, I thought that was really interesting with those particular, yeah. um, you know, uh, micro loans. If, if you actually, in, in those particular cases, if you wanted, you know, the, these developing nations to, to succeed in some ways, you, you gave the money to women because they invest, yeah. by far and away invested in the community and community success. Gosh, so that is really interesting when you think about world leaders yeah. And how, you know, they, they're, they're leading us in directions that are not sort of community spirited. Yeah. I mean, if you think about Brexit or any of those sorts of things or, or you know, uh, Donald Trump's general agenda, it's very, it's not collaborative. It's not, um, it's very isolationist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you compare that with Angela Merkel and she's very like, yes, we're going to keep the EU together. Like this is, mm. this is in everybody's best interest to do these sorts of things. Um, and granted with collaborative, um, with anything collaborative, you have to make sure that everybody's kind of feeling valued and, and getting a fair, fair cut in a way. Mm. Um, but you all pay in to get something out of that as well. So yeah. But anyways, you'd, you'd really have to talk to an actual like developmental economics to get kind of the, the the details on microphones yeah. and gender and stuff like that but I just, I just remember I always I always thought about that it was an interesting it, was an it interesting is really factor. interesting even with the actual without the actual details it is really interesting um that there is that general trend mm-hmm. um and it's also really interesting hearing it coming from a climate scientist because um I really get a sense of your area being extremely community focused mm-hmm. i mean it's it's a global community at the end of the day mm-hmm. um is what you're studying so it's uh yeah i i can see why you would even take note of that statistic well, yeah i think it's also just um the i think for dealing with things like um climate change it, it is going to take a very uh community oriented approach right the and especially the um like the people who are least able to afford the impacts of climate change are going to be the ones most impacted by climate change um so even though this isn't my particular area of expertise i do think a lot about you know how is climate change going to impact marginalized groups 
developing nations, women of color, you know, what do we think about in terms of, um, you know, environmental racism and where things like nuclear reactors might be placed or, or any of those sorts of things. We have to, we have to think about the challenges of climate change with a very, um, very, we have to look at it through the, through the lens of, uh, our colonial histories, our sexist histories, our our racist histories, and 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 make sure we don't repeat some of those issues when we're dealing with this huge problem. Yeah, that to, that we're dealing with right now today, we're we're experiencing the the impacts of climate change right now, mm-hmm. um, and seeing uh, communities just really fail to 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 be able to mitigate, to be able to, to rise to the challenges um, of climate change is really, it's pretty devastating, actually. Mm. Um, Can so. I ask a really stupid question? Mm. Um, why do we always come at the subject of climate change as though we've created the problem um, when there's this big ball of fire in the sky that is mm. constantly shining on us. I mean, shouldn't the climate be changing when you've just got this heat source constantly radiating at us? Well, I mean, it it, it does. Um, but, you know, the incoming in, uh, solar insulation from the sun is, is the main driver for why the earth is warm. Um, but the, and the warming, right? I mean... Well, I mean, it's it's warming because of greenhouse gases, right? So we we burn fossil fuels, we change land use so that we basically released carbon into the atmosphere, and carbon acts as a greenhouse gas. So essentially, the the incoming solar radiation that comes from the sun gets trapped, mm. and so that's not it's an it's a natural process in, in that we you know to have a habitable planet, we have to have a greenhouse effect. Uh, to begin with, but yeah. we're we're adding additional carbon to the atmosphere, which makes the greenhouse effect that much stronger. So right. it's not that the sun, I mean, over long time scales, the amount of solar insulation from the sun varies, um, but the immediate changes that we've seen since the, you know, the pre-industrial revolution around 1870 or so mm-hmm. have, have been due to the fact that we're releasing carbon into the atmosphere through a variety of of ways. So there's um, definitely evidence showing that since the industrial revolution, the um, rate of change of the climate has increased. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we look at climate change, um, if we look at the history of climate change, uh, the last time that we had anything remotely similar to the amount of carbon that's being released into the atmosphere that we have today was about 55 million years ago. But even then, it is a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the amount of carbon that we're likely to release with with human um, human release of CO two. Right. So we've not seen anything to this rate um, and this intensity for the last fifty five million years. Mm. So, and that's a really long time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just you know you hear certain things like you know when volcanoes blow. Uh, mm-hmm. They release greenhouse gases um, mm-hmm. on scales that, you know, uh, we that are sort of um, comparable to the amount we've been emitting over time. 
yeah, that's not, it, it no, I mean, that's okay. not quite right. The, no, it's not, you know, if you, if you, so if you do, so one of the, the, the tools that we have in, um, that we use as climate scientists is we have these um, climate models, right? We have these numerical simulations that can take inputs either from the sun or from uh, volcanic eruptions or uh, carbon that's been released due to human impacts. And if you, if you do something like just, um, you know, run a numerical model or climate model, just using the various volcanic eruptions that have happened over the last hundred years, you can't, recreate the amount of global warming that we have from volcanic eruptions alone. You have to include um, the carbon that's been in, in, um, introduced into the atmosphere by human activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on the volcano, you can actually get um, you can actually get global cooling due to volcanoes. It really depends on what kind of volcano it is and how the eruptions, like where that eruption happens like it, when it spews its material how how high up into the atmosphere or the stratosphere right. um do the, does that material um eject yeah c- can matter because ash can be like a giant shade which is why we might get cooling exactly yeah so the yeah so the the what was it the year of no summer the year of no summer was related to a major volcanic eruption that had happened um i'm forgetting where um what year it was, but yeah, they could, it certainly um, affects climate, but the, the thing for volcanic eruptions is that, is that they only affect um, climate, like global climate for maybe a year or two, and then they might have some lingering effects, but they're not a persistent, like, you know, hundred year of warming kind of effect due to a, due to a single volcanic eruption. Right. I'm so glad you cleared that up because, you know, you do hear all these like counter arguments to climate change um and it's good to hear from uh someone who knows um back to the topic of uh being a woman in climate science you mentioned that you're Mm. in your sort of mid-30s and one Mm. of the questions I have for all women around your age is um when you know considering all the academic study and then wanting to use all that academic study in your career when is there time to fit in motherhood and families and relationships and things like that oh it's hard um <laughs> but uh <laughs> i uh you know I've, I've i've i'm not married um i i've dated uh i've had various length of relationships my longest relationship was about four years um but you know it's interesting i i think about this and i think a lot of women in my particular field of climate science or are certainly thinking about this is the, um, is, is, is it worth having children knowing that climate change is this huge Armageddon? Yeah. And, uh, and for me, I, I actually don't think that I will have children. Um, yeah, I don't think that I'll have children. I, I, I respect anybody's choice to have children, but I just don't think it's likely going to be a decision that I make um, in part because it's Gosh, that's so interesting. Well, it's, it's, you know, it comes from a very, uh, 
like I, 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 I love my friend's children. I love my colleagues' children. I'm happy to participate in their, um, you know, intellectual and emotional development. Um, but the idea of bringing another source of carbon, especially <laughs> into, in, in, in a, you know, I live in a Western uh, country, you know, our, the amount of carbon that a single person uses in their lifetime is, is, is huge. It's, it's astonishingly huge. And um, I do think it's a very... What's the average for one person then? Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but it, you know, the, the, the carbon footprint of people in, uh, in, in India, for instance, is probably uh, I, uh, order of magnitude, maybe like a 50th or maybe even a hundredth of somebody in a Western world. It's very, it's yeah. vanishingly small in comparison. Um, mm. And that's probably not an exactly correct statistic, but it, it's sort of order of magnitude. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, it's really dark, isn't it? Just to be like, oh, I'm not going to breed because it's it's carbon. Um, it's amazing. I never, I just did not think that that would be your Oh, answer. no, this is you so know? many, so many people in my field are definitely thinking about this. Like people who think about climate change or, yeah, the 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 discussion, particularly among developed nations about thinking about not, I mean, nobody should be told how to do their family planning. That is everybody's personal choice. If you want a giant family, you have a giant family. If you want no children, you have no children. But the idea to consider having smaller families, um, especially from a Western world, is 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 probably key in many ways of thinking about how do we deal with climate change actually is is having smaller smaller families because the you know if you we already have 7.6 billion people on this planet and if everybody has you know three children four children five children it just gets exponentially worse right but if you have one child or two children or no children that's that's honestly, that's just less carbon. It's less environmental impact. It's a yeah. very like economic kind of way of thinking about it. And I don't want to project my values on anybody at all, but the, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. And I, I, you know, I, I think that you can have a really, I feel like I lead a really full life, mm-hmm. um, not having children, or I'd like to think that I do. Um, and I, you know, I've considered, you know, I mean, that's key, isn't it? It's key to be able to just enjoy the life that you have rather yeah. than constantly wanting something else. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've, I've thought about adopting if, if, and when I, I currently don't have a partner and I could certainly single parent as well, but um, I've thought about adopting um, if that would sort of work out. Um, but it's not, it's not, yeah. Breeding isn't necessarily something that I see myself doing. Gosh, that's such an interesting angle to take because I've I've talked to a lot of women who are kind of um, really in a sort of dilemma about when to actually fit in the process because, you know, educated women have to juggle a lot on top of that sort of very female side of them. Um, And it can be a real sort of uh, confusing time as to when um, we actually carve out that time and you know there's a lot of um discussion about having it all and is it really possible and things like that but I've never heard someone say you know what I actually don't want to 
contribute to the very problem that I'm studying. Yeah. I, I think that when I was in my late 20s, kind of early 30s, I was much more anxious about it. Um, mm-hmm. In part because I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have a permanent job at that point. I, um, I was dating somebody at the time and then that didn't ultimately work out. And, um, you know, now that I'm in my mid thirties and it's, um, you know, it's, it's not that I, I, people in my family have children or can have children late. So I'm not like necessarily worried about my biological fertility or any of those mm-hmm. sorts of things. But, um, I've just sort of chilled out about it. It's just been meh. I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's a, yeah. uh, it's just sort of a, if it happens, it happens, but if it doesn't, it's, it's, it's fine too. Well, I think that's one of the difficulties that women in STEM face is that, you know, we have studied something very logical and methodical and analytical. So, Sometimes there's this kind of delusion that life is methodical and logical and can be analysed and controlled. Mm. Um, And certainly in my experience, um, I've realised that actually life is sort of really messy and like cannot be predicted or um, sort of determined exactly according to how I want it to uh, unfold and that that's kind of not easy to navigate (laughs) because it's like well I've managed to exactly design my career um, but relationships and sort of like conceiving and things like that is almost like a lottery. I think what is is hard is that the there is sort of this expectation that you 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 know, kind of need to have your career like all together and, and, and very like you have these certain benchmarks of things that have to happen during your career. And eventually, you know, eventually you'll get around to, you know, finding a husband or finding a partner or, or and then having children. And I think that, you know, so in some ways that that's not the best way to, to go about it. Like life is, something or your career is something that you do while you're doing the rest of your life as well. Right. Like if, if, you know, forming a family and having children is something that's important to you, you should do it while you're building your career. And, you know, the academic institutions or businesses should be, have the structural support for you to be able to do that as a woman, Mm. you know, it shouldn't be this, this either or because the, you know, it's, if a woman, I, I respect any woman's decision to opt out of the the career ladder to take to 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 go home to 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 be with their children. Yeah. Um, but if women do that because they feel forced out, that's basically like any company, any nation, any government like leaving money on the table. You know, they've 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 spent tons of money and intellectual power training somebody who is very capable at a job and then to feel forced out because they don't feel like they can balance all these things. Like, you know, that these, these places are leaving money on the table because Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. So there just seems to be no support for women who are trying to uh, balance all these different aspects of being a woman. Um, Yeah. And I, I just feel that's, really something that has to change in order to give women 
a fair chance um, because I feel where we're at currently is that women um, have a lot of pressure to develop careers, um, you know, get educated, get skilled, develop careers. Um, but then societal expectations also put this pressure on us to be mothers and to mm. be partners. And I just, mm. I, I just, I personally just, I don't understand how all that can happen. And, and you are still able to do all three of them well. So I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know. I have no answer. Yeah. I, I don't really have any answers either, but I, you know, I'm, you know, I've been single over the last couple-ish years, you know, not not anything exceptionally serious. But part of me is, you know, now that I'm in my mid-30s as well, is like, what do I want mm. from a partner? And uh, this is going to sound really terrible, but the, the I, you know, I think that for, for me, for somebody who's really passionate about my career, um, you know, you end up just culturally, socially, you end up losing a lot when you kind of buy yes. into relationships mm-hmm. and sort of the patriarchal view of relationships. You have to compromise yourself somewhat. You do in, in, in ways that men aren't expected to, you know, like suddenly you have to figure out food for somebody else as well. You have all this emotional labor that you have to do to make sure that somebody else is happy. And I've, in previous relationships, I've seen myself really, um, just spend a lot of emotional energy yeah. on somebody else when I wasn't necessarily getting, I was getting, I mean, it's a relationship, right? You're getting a little bit back, mm. but not to the same extent that I was necessarily putting in. Yes. So it's, um, it's interesting. And and I think about that right now. It's like, you know, if I had to get into a serious relationship, just it requires a little bit of a patriarchal buy-in. And I don't know if I'm prepared to do that now or in the future right so what's the solution then like uh is it just being single then um i you know i've joked around with a lot of my friends that we're just going to create these like old lady communes I know. Our, um, and i think a lot of women have this idea that they're going to have their old lady commune where they all have their little tiny houses <laughs> and they have this communal space where they all get together and chat you know make <laughs> chat and have dinner and drink wine and i feel like that's my ideal like <laughs> retirement community so whatever i do between now and then you know, I don't know, but like, I, I know that I want like my really good girlfriends around in our tiny houses with our dogs or cats or gerbils or whatever sort of like pet makes you happy. Um, <laughs> right. Well, children, or whatever. You yeah. Know, the, While the men are sort of like running around sowing their wild oats and yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 I honestly, I, I'm really, um, at a loss as to the differences between men and women and um, how it all works in trying to be equal because um, we definitely are in a day and an age where women are becoming and have become very powerful. Um, But the circumstances in which they have become powerful have not been very feminine and I just feel like there needs to be some kind of recalibration, but I don't know how um, that's going to work. Uh, but yeah. it just feels very imbalanced. And 
a struggle and I just don't understand why women should have to struggle. I mean, why can't we be celebrated for the gender that we are? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So um, I've been thinking about this a bit because, um, uh, you know, I think that, that, uh, you know, most, most of the women who are kind of like they're, you know, building their careers sort of mid career um, are, were, you know, raised by boomer men who, you know, were very often encouraging, like, yes, do, you know, get, you know, get your job, get yours, like fight for what you want, um, you know, get what's yours. And then when they, when these same boomer men in positions of power, like see other people's daughters exhibiting this behavior, they get very incensed. Um, and they like, they find it really difficult to, to, to deal with. So like, think about the, 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 the woman of color in, in Congress in the United States right now, like, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez yeah. or Elon uh, Oman, uh, I think this is that. Um, but uh, you know they're 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 speaking their truth and they're they're calling out these injustices, and everybody just completely goes crazy. And but this is this is what you know everybody sort of as we were growing up they they told us to do this stand yeah. our ground. They told us to yeah. do this, and suddenly we're being like mocked and um just treated it like we're invisible or or just the the idea that we're taking up space in positions of power is just suddenly just unacceptable and it it, it is an interesting kind of it's a it's a generational and it's a patriarchal kind of like problem that we're dealing with now and uh yeah i don't know there needs to be a recalibration uh, for sure. Um, but yeah. it's such yeah. a gigantic shift that has to happen that I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime or, you know, my nephew's lifetime or, you know, it's just, it, it it's, maybe it will. Because I mean, as you say, it is this old um, sort of patriarchal type of uh, mindset, which maybe might just die out. Oh, I don't think it is though. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that um, you know, you look at there's all these things, I, you know, and, and oh, yeah. So, no, I I don't think that it dies out. I think that these values are very much instilled in younger men oh, still. Gosh. Um, and I I think you can see that from uh like so for instance there was a there was a um there was a study that came out that I didn't I I you know, I read the sort of the media take on it, but it wasn't, or the the academic media take on it, but it essentially was, uh, if you looked at the evaluations of, of women teaching math, um, the or women versus men teaching math, like women obviously got like worse, not obviously, but m- women often got reviews that were less favorable than men, or they did get fa- less favorable reviews. And by far and away, those came from their male students just completely denigrating their work. And, you know, that's not like there's, it's not like these old boomer men were saying this about, you know, women teaching mathematics. It was these young men in these, in these classroom rooms, just completely disrespecting the authority of, of their female instructors. Mm. And so, no, I don't think it's, I, 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 
I think we'd like to think that it's a generally generational issue, but I, I, I don't think that it is. I mean, it, not in its entirety at all. Mm. No, but I do feel like the uproar of men is actually happening because of their own insecurities. And the more powerful women get, the more insecure men are becoming, and they're shouting louder. So it might be that effect where actually women are women's power is rising, um, and as a result, mm. men are becoming more and more threatened. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's in part because you know the there's sort of this idea of, um, you know, limited resources, right? Mm. Um, like if something feels scarce, you're more likely to, you know, defend it, fight tooth yeah. and nail for it. Yeah. But if it's, if it's, if it's seen as sort of a more communal resource, then it's less, you know, everybody, everybody can be successful in mm. some way. I mean, I just would love to live in a world where, uh, men and women are just celebrated for what they bring to the table and we don't actually have an acknowledgement of gender issues uh, because you know mm. we're just seen as individuals and equal and the reason why I think um, attitudes may be changing is because social media is allowing um, more and more voices to be heard and so there is mm. a greater appreciation of our individuality uh, which is mm-hmm. very encouraging. But, you know, I hope women use uh, this opportunity to speak their truths um, and and be more assertive about their opinions. Um, and I really do feel that women can only learn to be more assertive from an early age because I think, you know, there's a tipping point after which you just you don't know how to use your voice so it's such a tricky I mean I thought climate science was a vast and complicated field but actually I think you know uh gender issues um such as the ones we've raised today are even more complex um and sort of uh difficult to detangle really yeah so I don't I don't have the answers. I just know that it's important to become aware of the issues. I think that's a first step. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think a lot of that, a lot of what we're seeing with um, implicit biases is, and the sci- implicit biases in the studies that are coming out are are really also just shining a light on what people have sort of said is their experience. Like you know, you you go into a meeting where, uh, you know, there are a few women and most of the people speaking for 80% of the, of the meeting are men. Right. But, and, and you, you might say that to a male colleague, like, Oh, that, that conversation was very dominated by male voices, but we didn't hear from very many women and your colleague will be like, Oh, I didn't think yeah. that was true. Um, but now we have like all this software that actually can program this and say like, actually men did speak for 90% of the meeting and didn't actually say all that much. Um, and that sort of thing. I think it's interesting to actually be able to start um, actually looking at these patterns, looking at these biases, and then thinking about how we have either interventions or think about some of the structural issues um, that hinder the participation of, of, of women and other under, underrepresented groups, um, I think is going to be really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have run out of time, um, but I feel like our conversation has 
travelled far and wide. <laughs> um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being so honest and open about your own personal sort of situation and um, sharing your, your views with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. That's it from my guest this week on Silence. My guest today has really applied her process of climate science analysis to the subject of women and uh, it's definitely been a really thought-provoking discussion. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence.